It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And if this is your first time listening or you just recently started listening, we just wanted to say thank you so much for choosing us. Now, today we are talking to a woman who just got some really brilliant news. Elaine Feeney, author and poet, is on the Booker long list. And I really was lying on the bed and I kind of saw the book pop up on the, you know, the way they do those graphics. And then I was like, Oh, no, it is true. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So, yeah, it's just been amazing. And I was so honoured and everything. But at the same time, then the phone started ringing and I'm useless for answering the phone. People don't ring like no one had rang my phone like in about, you know, since they told me the news. So, yeah, it's been it's been lovely, though. More from Elaine later on. But first, I just wanted to acknowledge that this week marks the second anniversary of the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. And to just say how appalling the situation remains there for women and girls. I know you're all read about it and we've spoken about it a lot on this podcast about the oppression and the near erasure of women and girls in that country, which is absolutely horrifying. The religious extremist Taliban have issued lots of different edicts over the past two years. And now it's a situation where girls cannot go to school beyond 10 years of age. Women can't work for NGOs or for the UN. They can't go to parks or to gyms or to beauty salons. They can barely step outside their own front doors without a male guardian. It's just really, really awful. And there's a lot about this in sort of international media and there's a lot of talk about it, but there just doesn't seem to be very much action. Um, And in fairness to him, Gordon Brown came out recently and made some very strong comments about this gender persecution and about how the international community needs to be doing more. But I just wanted to mention it because some of us are getting ready for the back to school madness now, buying books and making sure everybody has everything. And meanwhile, in Afghanistan, Girls and women who'd be loving to go to school are not able to do it. And there's just millions of people all over the world who've been exiled from that country as well. And I just want to keep them all in our minds. The solidarity is really important. Uh, Even if we can't do anything practically, we can at least make sure that we talk about them, we remember them and that they are not forgotten. Now, Elaine Feeney's second novel, How to Build a Boat, was long listed for the Booker Prize recently. And we got very excited about it here on the Women's Podcast. You know, we love our books. There was four Irish writers long listed, including Paul Murray, who wrote that amazing book, The Bee Sting. But she was the only woman and she's a writer from the west of Ireland. She grew up on a farm in Athenry in Galway. And she actually lives in that same house today with her husband, Ray, and her two teenage sons. Before turning her attention to novels, Elaine Feeney was, of course, a successful poet and she had published three acclaimed collections of poetry. They were inspired by her political and feminist observations. She first performed poetry in front of an audience at the Galway Poetry Slam at the King's Head, where after a while, after persevering, she eventually won 
the slam and it propelled her forward into her writing career. She had a severe illness in 2014 and she nearly died, in fact, and it gave her the inspiration to give writing a proper go. And she went going off writing her first novel. That was a debut in 2020. It was shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize and the Irish Novel of the Year Award. And it won the Dorky Festival Emerging Writer Award. That novel was called As You Were. Elaine is a great woman for the chat. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, which went to a lot of interesting places. But of course, I began by asking her how she felt when she got the news about being longlisted for the Booker Prize. So I was just here at home in the kitchen, but I really firmly didn't, you know, believe it until I saw the list on Monday, really, to be honest. It was a Monday, wasn't it? The days have just gone into some sort of mad blur. And I really was lying on the bed and I kind of saw the book pop up on the, you know, the way they do those graphics. And then I was like, oh, no, it is true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So, yeah, it's just been amazing and I was so honoured and everything but at the same time then the phone started ringing and I'm useless for answering the phone people don't ring like no one had rang my phone like in about you know since they told me the news so yeah it's been it's been lovely though and how does it feel because it's I suppose the most prestigious prize I mean there's a few big ones in the world and that would be the really big one so like what kind of feelings I mean happiness obviously and joy but like what what else because it's it's a big deal Yeah, like, you know, I've been writing for years and years and I suppose I was writing as a poet for so long that there aren't any prizes. So I actually think with As You Were, I started to get these prize nods and it was like, oh, this is new and this is very lovely. Um, And then, of course, you know, you you get told it and you have that sort of that that time with when it's just yourself and the prize. It's a bit like when you write the book, it's just you and the book. And then you send it off into the world and then the world has opinions. Um, so I, I felt really honoured, very proud. And then I started going, you know, the usual Elaine stuff. Do I deserve this? Flicking back through the book. Is the book OK? <laughs> Are bit my late for that, Elaine. Okay. <laughs> it was a bit late to be doing my last millionth spell check. But of course, but that's very typical of me. And I, I sort of think I'm that type of person. And maybe I don't know, are you, are you like this? But I kind of take good and bad news all in a bit of a, I need tea. I just, you know, and I, I've often said this, I love an average Monday where nothing happens. But look at it, it was absolutely, it, yeah, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Well, that wasn't an average Monday. But and what happens now? So that's the long list. What what do you know all about the next sort of steps or what way does it work? I did have a phone call with my publicist about all the next steps and she told me them all on the phone and I really I was like, okay. And I never know dates. My mother will say will always gives out about me. I can never like I know it's September, I'm gonna to be told, but I don't know the date. She was like, What date? And I said, I really don't know. I just know it's September you're told whether you're on the shortlist or not. But honestly, and I know people will say this, but I feel like, you know, I I just felt like I'd won the thing. (laughs) I'm like, I'm happy with the long listing. I felt like it was just, yeah, amazing. And I really didn't think past that. But I do know there's loads of dates, yeah. And not to be too mercenary about it, but I presume something like this immediately has a boost in sales. Is that something your, your people have been on to you about? So... They had always reassured me not to worry about sales. So (laughs) (laughs) because I'm so niche. (laughs) So I just continue with the don't worry about sales. But I know it started to sell out. And I was just um, in a bookshop in Galway there and they said they sold the last one yesterday, but they're expecting more in today. And actually, I'd only gone in for stationery for the back to school for the kids. And it was someone came running up to me in the bookshop, giving me a big hug. I was trying to go in, you know, 
<laughs> undercover. And they said, we sold the last two yesterday evening, so we've ordered more. So I do think it has had an effect on sales. Yeah, yes, which That's is nice. That's really, really nice. Yeah, more now, readers. You're in, Gal- um, in rural Galway now, is that right? Where you're, I'm, where you are? I'm exactly now in Athenry, looking out the window at the fields and the cows. And very close to the house you grew up in, is that right? I'm right in the house I grew up in. In this, the house? I'm actually that sitting, be closer. <laughs> I'm actually sitting right where the good crystal cabinet used to be. Yeah, so I, I actually bought the house that I grew up in. Yeah, so I'm sitting in the old sitting room. And tell me why you did that, because I suppose it wouldn't be for everybody staying in the place that they, you know, they were spent their childhood. Because I was as mad as a box of frogs, I think. I have absolutely, I've asked myself this question over and over again. I don't know is the really honest answer. I think there's some sort of Freudian nonsense going on with me, definitely. But I know that there's generations of my people, as we say, West here, that come from this road. My grandparents, they grew up very close by here. And, you know, there's lots of Feenies on the road. So I think maybe it was just some sort of, I don't know, it was mad. I was living in Cork at the time, actually, and I'd gone doing postgrad in education in UCC. And I just got the call home. I'd only gone for five minutes. And it is quite rural, isn't it? I mean, it's it's farmy. Oh, it's totally agriculture. <laughs> yeah, and I love it because like the tractors are going up and down the road. Now, one or two of the neighbours popped in to say congrats. And um, a lovely older neighbour sent a lovely card that I got yesterday. And it was just so nice. But also, they're still zooming past in the tractors, just, you know, nodding the head, you know. So I sort of like the the whole thing of living here and staying here and writing about here and reflecting on the West from being in it. Um, mm. I've, I've also said I think I lack ambition. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing well for someone who lacks ambition. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Going back, you mentioned your poetry there and would it be in that house as a, as a young person, younger person that you started writing your poetry? Yeah, no, um, and I just want to go back over the crystal in the cabinet. That sounds really lofty. This is not a big house. You know, <laughs> we have one bathroom. And when I think about it, there were five of us. So I had four siblings, my parents grown up. And yes, it was exactly in this house. So um, I was the only girl for 13, 14 years. I have one sister and three brothers. So there was the boys room and my room and my parents room. And I started to write the poetry Yeah, in the um, bedroom. That's just my son's bedroom now. Um, but it was a very, very different world and a totally different space. And it was essentially very isolating. Yeah, it was very, very isolating. And I was one of those sort of lonely, angsty teenagers scribbling away, you know, some lines about, you know, how sad I was. <laughs> and that's where it all <laughs> and it all started here. And actually that circles back to the house. I feel there might be an energy that keeps me writing in this space. And I'm afraid if I go from it, I'm going to lose something. Yeah, I don't know. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, and listen, tell me, people have talked about eureka moments. You had one of those in school, didn't you, relating to Patrick Kavanagh? So, and there are eureka moments and that's a really nice way of putting it. So, yeah, I just felt like an outsider a little bit, particularly at secondary school. And I was in English class. I had, um, I loved English class. I didn't really like a whole lot of other classes. And there was, a, I had this wonderful English teacher and I remember she read, um, Inish Keen wrote and she used to read the poems out to us, you know, and it was just that moment that that idea that he was an outsider and that he was looking at these kids going off to the dance um, and he just was on the outside and on the periphery, I suppose. And it kind of crossed generations and it just really spoke to me. And I said, OK, well, if he can write about this and 
he's from rural Ireland. Well, I can I can write my poems too. And in your book that's been long listed, How to Build um, a Boat, you you sort of there's two kind of key teachers in this young boy's life. And you, you're you kind of drawn to those people, aren't you? That people who make a big difference in people's lives, having been a teacher yourself as well. It's something that you kind of return to. It is. It's. I think in a way I'm taking my novels away from the dynamic of a family structure into the... I'm really fascinated by young people and the role models that they choose as a parent myself and also as a teacher. I'm just fascinated by the fact that, you know, we don't always control the role models that they choose either, but I am interested in the really, really strong effect that somebody can have on the life of a young person. And, it, you know, it's a good question with regards to the book because I was wondering, had I that person in my life? You know, is that why I keep writing about this? And I kind of was looking back and I was like, no, I don't think, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but I I have seen it in action, if that makes sense. And I've seen it with coaches and I've seen it with my own sons. Um, you know, I was everything to until they were about 11. And then I was suddenly cast aside for a soccer player. It's very sad. <laughs> and when you say about, you know, being in your room, writing your poetry, and I think you've said something like the poetry was about trying to control an out of control world in adolescence. What were kind of what was your life like growing up and what, what kind of things were getting you down or you, that you were ex- being expressing in your poetry? So I think I have a really, really strong sense. Like I said, I've been outside. I feel as a writer, I looked at things. I don't mean as a writer, I was a writer when I was four. I always felt like I was sitting observing things, even though I was quite chatty as a younger teenager. Maybe I was quiet as a young child. So I grew up here and my grandparents, like I said, they had a farm very close by. So my father used to farm with my grandparents. And I found from a very early age, just even the brutality of a farm, it was quite a simple subsistence farm. Uh, My grandfather had, you know, I talk about this horse and cart that he upgraded to a donkey and cart. And that used to bring the water up and down. And this was the 80s and 90s, you know. But it wasn't just that. I didn't really feel that that was any different to anyone else, even though clearly was. But I also felt there was a brutality around the animals and they die, you know. So they were killed for food or that they just died from natural causes or, you know. Um, It was very much the early purges, think Seamus Heaney. And I suppose there was a cruelty to that that affected me as a child very much, my sensory sort of, or my aesthetic landscape that I think as a poet, you go back into that all the time when you're writing poetry. I think with my fiction, I don't necessarily because I create characters, but with the poetry, I go back into that palette and it's quite brutal and it kind of hurts me a lot when I go back to it. But, you know, Mm. um, so yeah, so that, that was a real consideration of mine um just you'd get close to an animal and it would be sold or it would be killed or you know did you did you witness that brutality the killings I did now I was sort of shielded slightly from some of it um but you would of course like that's the natural order on a farm and you're you're a kid and you know as we'd say here the yos are dropping and the lambs were dead you know and you'd be like revive them it was just such trauma and sadness but yeah, we did witness it. And, it, um, and you know, like I said, you'd get close to pups and they'd be given away or sold. And yeah, and I I feel that even into adulthood, I, I don't like to be separated from from people. And yeah, it, it makes me sound needy, but it definitely had a really, really strong effect on me. And I found it quite violent, actually. Mm. 
So you you went into teaching and it was something you were interested in from from an early age. Is that right? So to go back to my big sad story about how I didn't love school either. So yes, to go back to the poems, um, I wasn't mad. I actually hated school. I've no one to blame for that. I just it just didn't suit me. I didn't seem to fit into it. Um, I was really, really unhappy at school. And I thought, of course, like in my naivety, the best thing you could do is become a teacher and change school for everyone. <laughs> and was it that idealistic? Was it like I have seen, a, a, you know, this done really badly and I think I can contribute to, to it being better? Yeah, because also like I, I can say I hated school, but I also knew that education and free education was my key out of the world I was in in some ways. Um, a world now that I'm oddly very proud of, that I was probably very ashamed of as a young teenager. Tell you know? me a bit more about that, about that shame. Was it was it a kind of shame of being not, you know, not well off and all of that kind of thing or the, the rural aspect of it or what was it? Well, you know, I think about like, you know, the not well off thing. I was talking to my husband about this recently and we were and I chat to my mother about it. I suppose nobody was well off. You know, it was all relative. Um, and, you know, as a teacher in a staff room, most of my friends that were teachers, their parents had come from farms as well. That was just that's just the landscape of the way the world was at that time. And of course, my mother didn't have, I suppose, the same kind of access to education that I would have had. But she was from the city, you see. So we have to put this into context. So she was in Galway and that was the bright lights. So she had come out to the countryside. Um, So she I used to see her sisters, you know, and she had a big family of 10 and the sisters, you know, be getting dressed up for discos and stuff. And then you come like 15 miles out the road and it's kind of <laughs> bleaker and you feel incredibly disconnected from this energy that was in the city. So I thought that if, you know, that was progressive and that was cool and, you know, they went into fancier shops and, you know, it, for me. So the shame was I knew what this other city life was like. <laughs> and I suppose that's very Kavanaugh-esque as well with the rural and urban sort of split. But... Yeah, shame, shame about, oh God, it's a great question too, but you kind of hide maybe who you are. I, I Nobody maybe wanted to be utterly honest. We're very, like I still have friends that I went to school with, one of my best friends, and we, we laugh now so much. And I used to say, I thought you were so spoiled. And she was like, I thought you were so spoiled. And you're neither of us were spoiled. You know, it was just, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suppose that's the pure thing, isn't it? You want to appear cool, whatever that is. Mm. So you got into teaching and you also mm-hmm. had um, your first son quite young too. Was that something you'd wanted to do when you were younger? Like, you know the way some people, some people think, I want to have children really early. Yes, Roshi, and I lay there and I went, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> some people do. <laughs> and still, I'm surprised to hear it now, but you weren't one of them. <laughs> I adore my children. <laughs> um, I know you do. <laughs> My son, he's 21 now, he, he did say to me, you know, what was your thought process behind that moment? I was like, you think I was having thought processes? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I mean, it's really, you do look at your life retrospectively and you do kind of question yourself on your decisions, whether they were active decisions or passive decisions. I did. I, so I went to university, decided to go teaching, did the H-dip. Good pensionable job, um, great holidays for the mothering and parenting and fathering. Of course, there's not. And it's a really, really, really tough career. And you realise that when you're in the middle of it. And then I had my first son. Yeah, I was 22, actually, when I had him. And then I don't know, really, you know, I often think about this. I made my own choices. As my mother said, there'd be no stopping you. You were very headstrong. But I do think about her. She had her 
for his son, my brother, quite young. Her mother would have had a baby at 19. It was totally normal. So I suppose was I following in that tradition in a way? But then I'd gone to university. So, you know, it's an odd dichotomy, maybe. I don't know. But um, yeah, I had him and I've never looked back, really. And you had a man in, in a relationship that didn't work out because yeah. your second son's with your with your husband now. Yeah. I mean, I also had a marriage breakup very, quite young in my 20s as well. It's an interesting one because there's a sense of failure there that I think is a bit, I don't know, feels a bit different because people thought you were a bit mad anyway to, <laughs> to get into a, a long-term relationship so, so young in a way and you're kind of proving everyone right. Did you have a sense of that? So succinctly put. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know about you, Roisin, but I get the impression that you don't like to fail either. <laughs> I don't really like to. And I mean, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm okay. I'm better at it now in a way, weirdly. But I think when you're that age and you've sort of put your stall on something and you've said, you know, this is what I'm doing and feck everyone else. They don't understand me and we're going to be brilliant. And then it doesn't work out. There is a kind of crawling into a little hole and licking your wounds for a good while. Oh, look. The older you get, you know, it's that Socratic thing. I know nothing. And I think by the age of 80, I'll actually just my brain was just going to be this empty thing. And all I'm going to be doing is floating in the sea and drinking wine. Like, I mean, I was so clever when I was 22 and I'm not so clever now at all. And you are. There's an arrogance of youth, I think. And I, and I talk to my husband now, Ray, a lot about this. I say, you know, there's an arrogance of youth. And I, I think it's necessary that we have it. I don't think it's necessary to use it in the way that I used it. Um <laughs> Yeah, that marriage broke up when I was 24, two years later, the, the the whole being a mom and and, you know, looking back on it, it just it just didn't work out. And I probably wasn't fantastic wife material. <laughs> and I'm just going to say it. And it was Adele, the singer. Um, I could <laughs> be misquoting her, but she did say about her own breakup. She just said, you know, basically it didn't work out. I felt at that time I was looking for reasons. I had to rationalise it. I'd just come out of an English degree. I mean, <laughs> you have to put an academic spin on everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and it really was. But I know for the last six months of that relationship, like I spiralled into a bad space. I was walking around the house wondering what reality I was in. And it was, it was very dissociative. I remember getting a camera, one that you develop the photos. And I remember taking pictures of, settings like dinner settings and breakfast settings and babies oh. nappies and stuff and so I'd bring them to the chemist to get them developed and then when I'd get, take them I'd open it and I'd look at them I remember I'd be yellow and blue and green cups and I'd actually look at them to make sure that that was the reality that's fascinating crazy it's maybe. almost like you needed validation of, of your reality yeah I think I and I think that that's possibly very likely the person I am still in some ways I need validation and I need somebody to say to me it's okay, go do this. And nobody's going to tell you that about a marriage breakup. Nobody, nobody is going to go, you go, girl. <laughs> You're going to have great fun with, you know, raising the baby. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't look back and it, it, it sort of, it didn't make, it did make me stronger, but it, yeah, there, yeah, it's still, sometimes it still affects me, you know, just in that moment when I'm just about to fall asleep and it goes back to you failed and you didn't mm-hmm. make that work, you know. Yeah, but I mean, like you did get your beautiful son from it. So, you know, that's that's the I suppose the big thing that you would take from it. How did um, having your son at kind of relatively young age and that breakup, how did that inform your art, your poetry at the time? Did it kind of fuel it? Yeah, I mean, it was such a shock to me. The whole 
the whole labor experience just actually blew my mind in not in the most brilliant way. Um, and for anyone listening, in, it's OK. My sons have lived with me for very many years. They're very used to the labor stories and <laughs> that they may be upsy babies in the most beautiful way. Um, but upsy babies, <laughs> upsy that's babies, very nice. Yeah. It's better than accidents, isn't it? <laughs> Happy accident. Yes. babies. And they, yeah, so, oh, it just... I, you see, I had gone to school. I'd grown up with brothers. I'd felt very equal with my brothers. We all helped on the farm. There was kind of no distinction made between the girls and the boys in that way. My sister was the same. We all dug in like, and so you f- I felt quite, you know, strong and powerful and went to university. We'd have discussions with the lads, the men and the boys in my class. And then suddenly I'm teaching in an all boys school and I have a son and I'm parenting on my own. Well, obviously I was co-parenting, you know, um, uh, in the breakup and it just, yeah, like I said, it just kind of blew my mind what I was left with. And I, and I realized, oh God, I didn't have it all and I can't do it all. And it, I felt a bit up against it and it did inform my poetry. And I think the early poems definitely came from an angry place and Mm. no poetry should be therapy, but I'm sorry, early readers and listeners, <laughs> 20 years ago. And thank you for your ears. <laughs> and you did this thing called slam poetry, which some listeners might not be as familiar with. Tell us about it, because it's, I suppose it's a good way of getting stuff off your chest, actually speaking the poetry out, isn't it? Yeah, which I did, like I said, I'm not entirely sure it's the right you know, venue. I think <laughs> you're meant to pay therapists, but um so no, but the slam poetry, so I was, I had, on a serious note, I had taken my writing very seriously. And, you know, English was a subject that I did excel at at school and I didn't excel in many areas, but art and English I was very interested in and history. And um, so I had been writing these poems from my teenage years and they weren't all awful, you know. And then I, re- I met my partner that I'm with now and he saw an advertisement. He knew I was writing poetry and took it very seriously because he's an artist. And I think sometimes when somebody else takes you seriously, you start to take yourself seriously. Um, You're like, oh, well, he thinks this. He's probably wrong, but I'm just going to pretend for a little (laughs) while. And he saw this ad in the Galway Advertiser for a poetry slam run through the Galway Arts Centre. And you, it was, you go, and I had never heard of a poetry slam in my life. And you go and you just perform your poem for three minutes. And then there was a kind of a national competition if you win. So you get through to the national final. And that's how it works. And the audience score you. They, they, they vote. So my friend anyway said, one of my teacher friends, she said, let's go in anyway. Sure, sure we'll have a pint of it all. It goes, you know, belly up. So I went in and I remember I did a poem about my grandfather and I read a poem about my grandfather and I got through to the second round and I'd only this awful, or what I thought at the time was an awful poem. It was called Women of the World Unite. <laughs> Please do not Google that, people. I I'm going so. to right now, <laughs> even as we speak. And actually, it's, it ends up in like a very aesthetic space within a episiotomy. So I don't think. <laughs> OK, maybe I won't. <laughs> Nobody needs to ever read it. Um, but it's funny. And I won the slam and I got through to the national final, which was run at the Courage Festival of Literature. And I didn't win the final, but I just it was just amazing. Like it was such a great atmosphere. It was in the King's Head in Galway. It was just like what I imagined art could be, performance art. It was quite political. There were 10 people in the final. They were brilliant performers. A guy called Brendan Murphy won it. I remember he he had a brilliant poem called It's History, Isn't It? You see, you remember all those things. 
And yeah, I just got to stand up in front of people and read my work and people liked it. And it took off from there for me. In terms of getting published and all of that, what, what happened? How did it, how quickly did it happen? Did you have enough poetry for a collection at that point or did you kind of? Well, you see what happens when you're young like that is you're, you're scribbling away all the time. You don't realise you need to edit anything. Um, <laughs> and I, and I probably had heard of literary magazines, but I didn't really, you know, I, did, I wasn't in that world or in that space. And there was a poetry publisher called Salmon Poetry and they were my, they had published Rita Ann Higgins and Adrian Rich back in the day. And they were my like, if I get published with these, I've, that's amazing. And actually, after I won the slam and maybe I, I won the slam two years later, actually. And she, the Jesse, the, the um, publisher there rang me and asked me, would I have enough for a collection? And never weren't one to turn down. Um, oh, well, <laughs> I will if you give me a couple of weeks. <laughs> and that's how it went, really. Um, and then well, you I, kind of glossed over winning the slam because that's two years later. You obviously came back and you really went for it. I mean, you saw you got good experience and you, yeah. you sort of took it on as a challenge and you actually won the whole thing. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And in between that, then I had I had a baby and my second son. So I have two boys. Um, so that was he was born in 2007. So I won it in 2008. Um, and I'd been really, really ill during that pregnancy. So I su- suppose I was like back fighting in some way, if that makes sense, and oh. delighted to be alive. So that kind of energy probably propelled me onto the stage like a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, would you say very feminist, your poetry at that point? And very like we talk about that sort of ma- the maternity hospital experience and all of that experience of being a woman would have that that have been a, a vein through your work? Yeah, very strongly, I think. And I, and I probably wasn't in as conscious of what I was writing as I possibly should have been. But then you have to look back and you say, well, that's how I wrote then and that, you know, and because of there was a performance element to it. I mean, it was very different to today and um, it was very political. Like I said, we hadn't obviously repealed the Eighth Amendment and uh, marriage equality was, was it even tabled at that stage for discussion? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we were really fighting against you know, a very unfair system that I had, you know, had what I would feel personal experience in after having the two kids felt very different about my role as a woman. It was very kind of shell shocked, um, had learned a lot of adult lessons quite early. And, you know, people will say you were an adult, <laughs> which I was. Um, and yeah, I think I was. I was definitely there was definitely a very strong feminist tone and very much as well cognizant of my grandmother's um, really became very clear to me what they had given up and what they had sacrificed in their lives, you know. And like my grandfathers weren't on the pig's back either, but, you know, the the women had it that bit harder. They were more isolated. They'd given birth to far more children in tough, tough circumstances. So I suppose I was writing with that sort of pain. And my grannies mm. were still alive there. And they'd be like, you don't have to be writing for us. No one should be putting us into poetry. did they appreciate it at all or were they just sort of puzzled oh no they loved it I'm not sure that they might have understood you know all of it but they definitely had my books and they used to love when I was in the local paper so that was yeah and that was kind of sad with the booker news for me was I couldn't ring them ah yeah well yeah, that is that is sad. But like they did see they did see your poetry success and the fact that you'd my father's kind of, my father's mother had always told me from a young age that I was trouble in a good way. <laughs> good trouble. We like that. Good on trouble. Podcast. And I said, I don't um, want to be. I want to be good. And she was like, no, you're not. Good. And your brother will probably be good, but you're going to be trouble. <laughs> 
I love it. She was very wise, wasn't she? Um, you talked about being ill in your pregnancy, but you also were very, very ill in 2014. And it was it's kind of, I suppose, it's, it's fair to say it was a life changing um, period of, of illness, really. Tell us about that, because you came close to not being around at all, didn't you? Yeah, I was. It's actually all connected or so I've been told. Um, and it's still a little bit ongoing now, but I had a facial injury when I was young and when I had my second son, I, I was diagnosed with a brain clot, um, but they said it had something to do with the sinuses, not to go to, into too much technical detail. And then when I, in 2000, so it, it lingered, it, it lingered for a long time, you know, it would be fixed, but it was always there, if that makes sense. And I got an infection in my, in my face in, uh, in 2014 that I didn't realise that I had actually, and I was hospitalised with sepsis. And How did it manifest when you, you know, you talk about that? Uh, in your face what, uh, what would people have noticed nothing really like just bar that I'd had my tooth I, I I'd, I'm giving away all my secrets people will be looking at my face I'd had my, and a tooth implant and had I had it at that stage I had a crown you know it came from breaking teeth when I was a child and, and damaging the bone above the teeth and I'd had a bone graft when I was 16 about like it's kind of like a dental surgery in effect but I now know because surgeons say this is the triangle of death from your nose around your mouth because infection can obviously get either into your heart or into your head. And um, so I was really, really sick in 2014 and I genuinely thought it was work stress. I was tired, you know. <laughs> yeah. And of course, again, it goes back to the not failing. So yeah. I was going into work and... But you weren't feeling well. I was feeling very unwell. And my mother told me I was looking incredibly yellow and... <laughs> Well, that was that's a sign, isn't it? If anyone's listening and you're looking a bit yellow, it's not good. And uh, yeah, so I just left school on a Friday and I, I ended up going to the doctor and I had a bad infection and so on. But I, I'm very good at convincing doctors, just give me antibiotics. And, you know, those steroids, they fix me, you know. So but by the Tuesday, I was rushed into hospital and I, and I was brought straight in and I was actually resuscitated. And they told my mother that I had about an hour to live. Yeah. Yeah. And she told me that I was never allowed to write a poem about it. And I said, I couldn't. Do you remember the awful cardigan you wore going into the hospital? It was awful. (laughs) (laughs) I want to read that poem about the cardigan. (laughs) And you had sepsis. So you shouldn't be laughing. You you had sepsis and they literally thought you were going, that was it. You were, you were a goner. I had respiratory arrest, which is very, if anyone had it, it's very similar to a heart attack. You know, it's that sort of paddles and all that sort of stuff. Um, and they didn't know where the infection was coming from, of course, because it was clearly coming from this thing in the face that I I had sort of disconnected myself from. You know, I, I can give all my medical history, but I just never used to tell what was actually wrong with me, which I think is a problem for doctors. You know, well, I was a bit tired and I looked a bit yellow, but I'm grand now. I have to go to work. Bye. And um, yeah, so it just went on. I was about 18 months trying to recover from the exhaustion of that. So it was a, a long illness and when well, you yeah. were in hospital and then yeah. and then coming out, it took you a long time to recover. Yeah. And, and so, but it's interesting because it kind of was the turning point for you going to writing a novel, wasn't it? So, you know, you have those sort of moments in your life where it's like, I'm never giving out to anybody again. I'm so grateful. I'm going to stop whinging. I may never write another feminist poem. <laughs> Just let me live, whoever you are. And... Um, <laughs> Actually, I was only out. I was in, like, I was sick for a long time. I was only out. I was given out that the hoovering wasn't done. And then, (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm sorry, I'm just laughing because I recognize that so much, you know. I mean, I think we do. I don't, it doesn't even take a life challenging illness to do it. Like, the other way, sometimes yes. just something bad happens and you're like, all right, that's it now. I'm, doing, I'm yeah. going to be so, I'm going to do my gratitude journal. Yeah. I'm not going to shout at the kids. I'm going to, be, and then it's like two seconds later. I mean, it's terrible. Useless. A, gra- a gratitude journal. Somebody said that to me recently. Would you write into a journal? And I was like, I'm a writer by trade. Do you think I want to write anymore to recover? No. Anyway, I'm so grateful that I am. Genuinely. But anyway, it didn't take you long before you were given out about the dishes in the sink and the hoover yeah. not being done. Yeah. And also, what else? And then what I was happened? like, um, well, you see, as well with poetry, I just felt like my mo- I didn't want to write about the experience in poetry. I just didn't even know how to. It was too overwhelming, if that makes sense. It was just too much. And I, again, I blamed myself because... I hadn't really looked after myself properly. I ignored myself. I felt I'm not really that sick and I didn't want to be going in and annoying them. It's so funny with the hospital thing. They're like, you should have come sooner or you shouldn't be here at all. (laughs) You're like, I just don't know the sweet spot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But anyway, I decided that the hospital experience was so colourful and so glorious and so sad and so, I don't know, overwhelming that I needed to decant it and I needed to use fiction because it's stranger than fiction. It's sadder than fiction. And I just couldn't do it in any sort of reality. That had to be fiction. But I, I could take the auditory chamber of all the sights and sounds and sadness and brilliance and happiness as well, of course, because it's the most euphoric place and the most horrific for people. You know, it's it's you get everything inside in, in that space. And I just and that's where the novel As You Were came from. And of course, repeal the eighth and everybody on the radio with their traumas. Yeah. And it took you a few couple of years to write it because you have, you know, two young young sons at that stage. And was it difficult? I mean, because you were working as well, I presume, back to work in, uh, in your teaching. How did you fit it all in? Yeah, you know, I just I feel for me that when my back is to the wall, but then the doctors don't like when I do the back to the wall and go mad and run myself ragged because I have a tendency to do that. But I feel if I have two hours, I'll use them way more wisely than if I have 10. And I was so desperate to tell the story of these women on this hospital ward. I was so desperate to try to, like, I didn't mean it to be a state of the nation novel or anything like that, but I was listening to people on the radio and and so many people had so much skin in the game saying this happened to me and this happened to me and this happened to me. And it just felt like there was this national somatic pain. And and then I had my personal pain, if that makes sense. Mm. And I just said, I really just, and so I was so compelled to write that book. I mean, I jumped up and down on the chair or in the bed with with the the medication, but I was really frantic writing that novel. And I think for anybody that read it, they probably recognise that. (laughs) (laughs) And And I'm sorry. And did you have an agent at this stage or... Did you get one afterwards? Or how, what, what way did that work? Because I know you have a very good agent who yeah. you thank in the in the back of the book here as well. Yeah, no, he's just been like, so when I think of that teacher, like Tess and Tyg and How to Build a Boat, I really firmly believe that that person is my agent. Now, I think, you know, I did, like I was so lucky to meet him and he totally believed in me as well. So I, I feel with my husband and him, we have this like <laughs> triangle thing going on, but he's just been just amazing. So no, I had no agent. I wrote the book. It was actually called Sick at the, I thought that was a great title, but anyway, it changed as you are. And um, they thought the title might turn people off. I re- now realise. I like it. that title. Sorry, just to oh, say. Oh, do you? Yeah, I was there, yeah. Kind of in a nerve and Welsh sense of, you know, sick. Yeah. Um. 
so I had the novel written and I'd written for a year and, you know, it was kind of metaphorically under the bed and I wrote a poetry collection. So I did actually, I wrote a poetry collection called Rise. So I wrote this poetry collection and in the back of the poetry collection, I wrote that I had written a novel and um, I was now going to just retire and keep bees. And it was tongue in cheek, but it was also <laughs> I think I might retire because I really was at that. No, genuinely, it was a real turning. I didn't know if I wanted to continue writing. So I got this call out of the blue then one day I was in, I was actually having my hair highlighted in the <laughs> hairdresser. So I was full of tinfoil and it was actually my agent, Peter Strauss, rang me. He'd read the poetry collections and he said, I see in your poetry bio. I thought it was a joke, Roisin. I really was like, is this a setup? And Sinead, he's quite and, well known, isn't he? Yeah. And I know that the great Sinead Gleeson had said, you need to read her poetry. And but to be fair, he went out and bought these books somewhere. And anyway, he rang me and he said, could I read the novel? And like, of course, I just pretended I was in a hammock reading Kafka. I was like, of course. <laughs> I was like to my hairdresser, is the bleach burning? Is my hair going to fall out? Um, and I said, you can. Yeah. But I said, will you give me like, you know, a day or two? Like, so I, I had seven days, day and night, fix the novel. <laughs> I rewrote the thing in about seven days and I sent it off to him. And a day or two days later, he rang me and he liked it a lot. And oh. that the rest, as they say, is history. But it wasn't just that he liked that novel. He How to Build a Boat was in its infancy. And we spoke at length about that book. And he talked a lot to me. And I, I, I'm able to sort of fire off ideas because they don't come to me fully formed. I need someone to believe in my madness and to tease it out a little bit. Um, and then and through him, I got my wonderful editor, Kate Harvey at Harville Secker. And yeah, they've just been unbelievably supportive of my madness. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So tell me about How to Build a Boat. It's a beautifully written book and it's about a really fascinating young boy, Jamie. It's about his uh, two teachers, Tig and Tess, and their sad stories in a way as well. And it's about as the title suggests, building a boat. So there's a lot in there about how to build a curragh, if anyone's interested in doing such a thing. How did it all come into your head? What 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 was the germ of the idea for you? So I had this idea, obviously I had taught in a boys' school for two decades and an all-boys' school, and my own son was about to embark on secondary school. Kind of even, he, was, he might have been in fourth class, I think. I'm, I'm no good with the timelines on these things, but I knew it was coming up to the time where we had to choose a school. Um, and it was really, I, I was quite 
interested in telling this story about a boy that goes to a boy's school and he needed to build a boat. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I had no idea why he needed to build a boat, but I just got fixated with this idea that this boy was going to start secondary school and he was going to have to build a boat. And there was going to be a teacher at Tess who, who turned out to be Tess. And both of these people, so Jamie starts, he comes from the Heights and um, Tess comes from the loftier side of Emery. And they were going to meet on the first morning of school and they were going to change each other's lives in in ways that I didn't even realise. But I just had this this visual setup that this woman was going to meet this boy and she she needed to meet him and he needed to meet her. And it just... um. This voice was in my head, this Jamie sort of voice, but it didn't actually turn out to be Jamie's voice. But it was like, did you know that? You do know that. Did you know that? And he just kept asking this and he used to talk to me. And I don't know, like, do I just suffer from auditory hallucinations? <laughs> because as you were, was like, the kids here would be like, who are you talking to? And I'm like, I'm talking to my characters. Go away. <laughs> so he had to go into this school and the school had was going to be this oppressive school. And his dad was going to have no choice. His parents at the start, I didn't really, really realise that his mum was going to be dead. But um, when, the more I got into the novel and it took me like a year to figure out the why of all of this, it just became more and more apparent that he was being raised by a single dad. And, you know, I've said, I've said that maybe like I considered what would have happened to my son if my husband had raised him and had sent him to school and had sent him to a, a Catholic boys school. And... You know, another writer said to me, was it a love song to your son in a way? He said, I finished it. And I said, yeah, maybe that's nice. And I I keep thinking about it retrospectively. And I've decided that actually, no, what it is, is that he I'm writing the book to try to explain the world to people around him, maybe so that they'll understand him. So I suppose Jamie crosses over a little bit with my son, but Jamie became very much his own thing after Manny, you know, chats with him. He's he's another person in our house now. Another one, Jamie. Yeah, very much. We did. What would <laughs> it's Jamie funny do? Be, because he's kind of you know. I'm just reading from the back because it's well described how much he likes Edgar Allan Poe. He mm. likes tall trees, patterns, uh, the rain that comes with the wind. These kind of things. He's very particular in his likes and dislikes and his way of living. And people have described Jamie as neurodiverse. So is that something you wanted to explore too? Yeah, I think it is. I think like I have personal experience with raising a child that's neurodiverse and divergent. And I'm kind of, again, it's it's funny with primary school, you know, you can just pop up or you can pop in or you can kind of shadow around like the helicopter parent I became that I never thought I would. But obviously, um, and my son was hyperlexic from a very, very young age, like he could read huge amounts of text but didn't always know how to comprehend them or use them. He wasn't reading at an emotional level. It was just, you know, he was taking in lots of information. And so that that was the catalyst for Jamie's early, you know, fixation with Poe, fixation with reading and, and long sentences. And and lots of people have said, you know, I've read a lot about that he's a savant and, you know, he's a maths genius. But actually, for me, I disagree. He has all this information. He takes in all this. He's like a sponge of information, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he knows where to put it or how to just be with the other boys. Um, so I suppose I was interested in that. And I was I was probably interested in how teachers or 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 like we said earlier, people, you know, role models for kids, how they can identify needs and strengths in students without over categorization or just that if I'm not there to explain the situation, 
will someone pick up on it and will he be okay? And Jamie was. I, I mean, I'm probably asking an awful lot of questions of the novel that the novel can't answer for me. I realise that now. Mm, it's interesting. And the other thing that's a thread running through it is kind of that idea of boys growing up these days with the various influences from Andrew Tate to, you know, Jordan Peterson to just the fact that there's everyone's on their phones all the time. Was that also something you wanted to look at raising two sons yourself? I mean, how do you do that and how do you try and nurture them in the way they need in this day and age? Well, look, it's so challenging. Like it really is. And I, we definitely, I got, I got the, the, the Peterson um, effect at school was very strong, you know, when I was teaching there. But I think I took career break. Um, how long am I on career? I was about 17 years teaching. So it was on the kind of that, the, the turn with Tate and it had actually turned quite nasty. And I, was, I, I missed those years at school. But what I did, what I was in school for was um, Trump's election, actually. And, you know, I loved teaching boys and I really wanted to stay in that space. But I was finding it more and more difficult because every day and they were brilliant and I loved to talk to my students but every day I felt like I was pushing a boulder up a hill because they'd be like Joy Jordan Peterson said today or you know or Trump did get elected I was in all my history class going it will never happen it will never happen it will never happen and it was it was just the next day I had to walk into school going oh how do I face this you know as a, as a woman in a classroom and, and of course they wanted answers and they wanted to talk about it and they're brilliant and they were bright and lo- like I loved teaching boys and, you know, all the different voices are needed in classrooms and homes and places. But I think communication is key and I think to listen as well is key. And then when the Andrew Tate stuff started, I did ask my sons and of course they had seen him and heard of him. And I hadn't even I had I had no clue who Tate was. And of course I went on the defensive and of course I went on and and then they hide it from you so then there becomes this sort of concealment so you have to try to be to be you know (laughs) more open yeah yeah you can can tell me anything and then they tell me and I go off on one like a lunatic and I take out the hoover (laughs) you know it always comes back to the hoover doesn't it but I know but I had a really really like yeah, there's a lot of hoovering in this house. I had a really good conversation with my husband. I said, you're going to have to do some of the heavy lifting on this too a long time ago because I said, you know, I can't. And he really agreed. And, you know, he had great chats with them as well. I think it's, but it's about also understanding what is that vacuum and the algorithms that's feeding this to them on their phones and on their screens. And and we really are up against it and parents really are up against it. But I really believe and I think I wrote the book in some ways with regards to the building of this Karak to get back into that idea of tactility, of using your hands, of getting off the screens. And, you know, and I always found that with my own kids, if you could take them out and like my son now says to me, don't tell me to go for a walk. That'll cheer me up, please. But I said, but it really will cheer us all up. you know. But it's that idea of getting into nature, getting back to, you know, Talking while doing something. I don't know if you yeah. noticed that with the it's like That's why the men's shed thing is taken off so much, isn't it? Because yeah. it's men standing side by side working on something. And and, and as they do that, they, the conversation kind of expands. And you see, I didn't realise that, but I know that the three boys, the three, my husband and the, my sons that I live with are fascinated that I go out. They'd say, where were you? And I could say, I'm meeting Roisin for coffee. And they'd be like, but you were five hours gone. And I'm like, yeah, but we were chatting. And they're like, about what? For five hours. Um, so I realise now that actually, yeah, the front of the car is a great space. Someone just driving along, looking out at the road. And I realise that teaching boys as well, you know, um, 
there has to be, yeah, you have to be doing something or it, it, there has to be another way in to something or through a book or through a text, which is why books and poetry and all that, it's so interesting and the discussion points that can come up. And yeah, I don't know if I'm making any sense there, but definitely I felt with the boat. And I was always kind of fascinated by the practical subject teachers in the school. They were just, they were such my heroes often. You know, I'd go into the woodwork shop and um, I'd say, my God, that's amazing. They're all just so focused here. And I'd be yeah. terrified. The saw is going like 90 miles an hour and the, the, everyone's just chill. <laughs> and it's kind of true, isn't it? By reading How to Build a Boat, you kind of would know how to build a boat um, if you were so inclined. I know. After reading your book. <laughs> I know. And it's funny because you were at Boris Festival and I was having that conversation with Alex Clark and and I said, and I did, you know, give a whole description of how to, I took that very seriously. And one woman in the, one woman in the audience was just like, I know, and I know that people flick through those, those pages, but I just felt <laughs> it would be false advertising if I didn't. And I'm fascinated by interviews. I thought I'd be asked about the whole construction of it, like to the nth degree. And no one wants to know a thing about like Sally It's strange, Rose. isn't it? <laughs> about the tiny, the holes you have to put the oars in and how long the oars have to be know, and the lathes and the, all the different... Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's such a shame. <laughs> Sorry. And you jammed up on it all to have all these big spiels and no one asked you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but I'm kind of a bit relieved because I forget a lot of it now. <laughs> but, but I was right at the time. <laughs> Listen, talk to me about rejection and criticism and how you handle that, because anything we do in public life, whether, you know, journalism, writing, uh, art, anything, you put your stuff out there and you have to be prepared then for what people think about it. How do you cope with that? Well, you see, I'm very lucky. I've never been rejected or criticised, so I'm OK. I don't know about you, Roshi. <laughs> I definitely have been both those things. Oh, so you Lord, must be a very you know, special person. Oh yeah, I know it's all been lauded. I've been just <laughs> Oh yeah. Is that your way of avoiding the No, the no, question? and it does no no, it's not my way of avoiding it, and of course it hurts, yeah. I'd be like and I it would be a lie and I'm not really good at that. Like I I'm quite honest. And um I yeah, it can hurt. And I, I find with me though, the first cut is very deep for about a day. And then day two is OK. And by day three, it kind of does go out of my head a little bit. Um, I don't know if there's teachers listening, but years ago, there was a, a website called Rate My Teachers. So that was my first foray into, oh, wow. <laughs> Did you get things said about you in that context? Yeah, no, it was, mostly, it was mostly positive. But then, of course, you oh. give someone detention and then <laughs> you were the wicked witch of the West. And um, But... I suppose it, it, it comes with this idea that everyone now has a, a place to platform their opinions is is a good thing in some ways with regards to taking down powerful people that have been in control for a very long time. And I think it's quite democratic. So I suppose you have to take the good, the bad and the ugly with that. And I suppose you don't have to read it all. Um, the rejections are very much a part of the writing life. And I've realised Writing and the arts and art is so subjective. I mean, it's hugely subjective. Even this booker list is hugely subjective and everybody quite rightly has an opinion. And and quite rightly, some people prefer other books and people that adore my book. Some people the same, you know, they hate another book and vice versa. Um, and then there's people in the middle and that's just the way it goes. For me, like I've never reviewed anything. I don't feel that I feel I change my mind on things so often. Um, I feel that I've come to stages in my life where things have really resonated with me. And then I feel that I've read things at other times that I'm like, I don't know what the fuss is about. And then five years later, I read it and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm bawling, crying, going, you know. So for me, 
I just stay out of the arena of reviewing and criticizing just doesn't work for me. I just I just want to I just want to write. But I I mean, it's very much is a part of it. And it seems to be like a bit of a roller coaster. And some days you're up and some days you're down. Some minutes you're up and some minutes you're down. Um, I jump into the sea and I do the gratitude thing for what I have in my life. And I tell my husband, never, ever leave me. I'll never survive. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just you have um, you haven't had a collection of poetry for six years, but you have one completed now. and It's going to be out next year. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And I suppose, so tell me about that. And what's the kind of um, subject matter? What have you been exploring? So it's called All the Good Things You Deserve. And it's actually about gender based violence um, juxtaposed with all the men in my life that I've loved. So. Um, yeah, it's a kind of it's a, it's 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 split in two, if that makes sense. And it's just an inquiry into that for me. Um, and it's the first time that I've really gone back to, you know, experiences and absolutely really taken them apart and tried to write about them. So it'll be a big tonal shift from how to build a boat. But um, yeah, it sounds very, very uh, personal and probably quite uh, dark and bleak. Would that be fair? That would be fair. And but there's again, there's always going to be like with me, I have a very dark sense of humor as well. <laughs> so, you know, I cast a big shadow that way, I think. But I'm trying to do it's It's a balance. It's a constant balance. This this new collection, actually, for me, there's one very long poem that's about 30 pages long, which is the title poem, um, which isn't about being assaulted when I was younger. And so that took me a very, very long time to write. But it's the editor that I have now for How to Build a Boat and As You Were. And I, I love her to bits um, and I really, really admire her brain as well. You know, so it's it's a lovely relationship insofar as I just feel I can trust her with this work. So it's more of a kind of a team effort now. And I have more eyes on my work, which is unusual for me, because when I started out, I wouldn't show it to anyone. And then I put it in a book. And all the good things you deserve is a, is, is quite uh, thought provoking and interesting as to the places it, it could go to. Mm. Is it around that thing of, you know, we sometimes deserve the bad things or the good things or how, how, how can you, without giving too much away about that very long poem, what, why is it that title? Yeah, no, no, that's a great question. And I, <laughs> I'm prepped for how to build a boat now, Ocean, and I'm not prepped for this book yet. <laughs> but I think it is, yeah, it's meant to be sort of tongue in cheek insofar as, you know, that sort of awful saying, asking for it. And it really kind of um, delves into that whole area. And then, you know, I suppose it's what you feel you deserve yourself sometimes when you're younger and how warped your thinking can be on who you are. And the experiences that you've gone through and how you try to put logic on them when you're younger, terrible experiences that you actually realize later in life when you look back retrospectively on them that, oh, that was that. That was actually, yeah. real, you know, and, and 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 you trying to maybe, you know, as I said, like rationalize them. You're your own hardest critic in those moments, actually. And it takes a very, very long time to process a lot of that, I think, to look at it objectively. And I think I couldn't have looked at that objectively as a younger woman for me. I would have been too defensive and too angry. So I, I hope that whatever the book does, and it is dark in places and it's it's be, it, it's full of love in other places, I think. And I hope good poetic form as well. <laughs> but I just hope it's an open hand as well. And I felt with a, uh, How to Build a Boat as well, I wanted the prose to be clear and to be quite simplistic on a level that while it's dealing with lots of 
you know, challenging topics around, you know, patronage and around raising boys and toxic masculinity and neurodiversity and, and you know, being a woman also for tests in the world. I also wanted it to read in a way that was going to invite readers in. Yeah. And, you know, when you write, when you write your poetry, because it does sound, it is obviously very, very personal this time as well. And I'm sure your other poetry is the same. But does it is it different to when you're writing, say, the, the novels or when you're putting you're obviously putting a lot of yourself in the novels, too. But, you know, there's ways of disguising it more in fiction. Do you feel like with all the good things you deserve, you're laying yourself out and exposing yourself in a different way? And now that you have quite a high profile, you've been long listed for the book or does that feel daunting at all? It doesn't. It should. I know it should. So I'm wondering, am I having another one of these kind of out of body experiences that I was really good at as a child? So um, it just felt that it was very necessary and that I had to, you know, just go there and that I really wanted to write something kind of deeply personal, if that makes sense. Because, of course, the book, you know, I took the break from the poetry. Rise was deeply personal. And you're right, like the fiction was a joy insofar as you know, of course, Jamie is inspired by things that I've experienced, but he became his own person. Tess is very much fiction and Tyg. They they are these wonderful fictional characters that while you're invested in them, they are characters. You know, you met them up in your head, Elaine, you know. So yeah. there is a really, really big space for that while they are criticised, you're not fully being criticised. You know, no one's going to write the perfect book ever. Um, well, maybe some people have, but I'm not. And yeah, with this, it's deeply personal, but I just feel I'm in my 40s now and I just think I have a lot of distance and I'm going back to it objectively. And I really wanted to write it in a way to record it and witness it for myself. That's the best reasons, I think. And I think so many of these subjects, it sounds like from what you're talking about, are so universal, especially for women that I'm sure is going to resonate and have people reflecting on their own experiences that they have um, changed the way they think about things that happened to us, you know, when we're younger and we kind of brush them aside or we rationalize them and we say, oh, that was perfectly fine. It didn't affect me at all. And it's only by the passing of time yeah. that kind of those things unravel or are unpicked in yourself and yeah. anything that helps with that and, and art and poetry can do that so well. So apart from the poetry, are you working on a new novel as well? I am. I'm working I'm on cracking a, the whip here, Elaine, making sure that you're still. Novel. I'm <laughs> working on a play. I'm wow. supposed to be writing a short story. I I'm not sleeping. <laughs> 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 I'm just eating all the time. I know. Um, I'm working on a new novel, but it's very, very gentle. I have two characters and they're 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 having chats. That's all I'm going to say. They're just having chats and they're constantly and I've written a few bits and pieces, but I'm just unsure about him. So it's a it's a couple. Um they've met up yeah, I'm not gonna go into it just No, okay. don't. And I'm sure you're also <laughs> chatting to them as well as they're chatting to each other. But by the sounds of things, that's what that's the process for you. That's the process, yes. Yeah, and so your like, kids are like, Mom, what are you talking to? <laughs> I know, I know no but no child deserves a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Elaine, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you and uh, congratulations again on the long list of the booker. And as you say, whether you get onto the short or you don't, it's a massive achievement. Thank you. And they're already selling out in the bookshops in Galway. So that's that's, that's good news. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's been it's been really interesting talking to you and uh, hopefully we'll have you back again because I'd love to talk to you about that collection when it comes out because it sounds absolutely fascinating too. Thanks so much, Roti. 
That was the brilliant Elaine Feeney there and her latest book is called How to Build a Boat. If you enjoyed this episode and the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast. It really makes a big difference. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. That's it from me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> <laughs> 